You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now well, we're walking through the Mission City Memorial Park in Santa Clara, California, and there are rows and rows of tombstones there. I guess you call them headstones. They stand vertically. Very peaceful here today. You have the birds flying around, sunshine. Yeah. It's actually a beautiful place. Lots of different headstones here. Some of them are, are quite small and laid here in, in the ground, and others are larger, more elaborate. You see the one over there with the hearts, the dual hearts? Yeah, yeah, husband and wife. Also, remarkably, Molly, look at how many of them have flowers or you know, other items, flags and so forth placed on them. I mean, there's obviously a lot of attention paid by the relatives to, uh, to the people that are buried here. And they're all remembered in different ways. Here we have a picture. Now, this is someone who was born in 1896, and there's a black and white, old black and white, almost sepia picture of her. She died in 1953. Yeah, you see all the flowers on this one? And, and this is somebody who was, has, has been dead for more than half a century and still being remembered. The word cemetery comes from the Greek for sleeping place, Molly. And for some, death is a transient and permanent phase. I mean, your body may die, but you live on. For others, they just believe that death is eternal, and that's the end of it. I'm Seth Shostak. And I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Are We Alone? Well, the different attitudes to what happens after you die, the effect of a physical death on the mind or the soul, is fascinating. But so is the process of death. Yeah, well, it may be fascinating. I just don't want to experience it too soon. (laughs) Well, I understand that. And being in a cemetery brings starkly home the reality that we will all die. And many of us will end up in a place like this. Yeah, but why do we have to assume that that's true, Molly? I I didn't sign up for this. Well, that's a good question. So why do animals and humans are animals, right? Why do we have to die at all? It seems like an odd question to ask since, especially standing here, we see that death is so much a part of life. Yet, there are some creatures, such as the hydra, that are biologically immortal. Hey, can I sign up for that? <laughs> well, why aren't the rest of us? University of Washington biologist Matt Caberline has an idea about the biology of why we die. And if this topic is unsettling, try to hang in there because you may perk up when he gets to the subject of anti-aging drugs and a possible cure for death. Matt, why do animals die? Well, that's a great question. And I think, you know... Like all biology, you can really only start to understand aging and death if you think about them from an evolutionary perspective. Uh, In other words, how do the forces of natural selection shape these processes? So I think, you know, there's been a couple of schools of thought on this for a while. One is that there's really no reason the body has to wear out with time. And so that has sort of logically led to the idea that aging and death are programmed, that there's some forces of natural selection that are acting to promote death in individuals. I think, you know, what the research has indicated is that that's probably not the case, that there isn't a lot of evidence for programmed aging or programmed death. So I think really the way to think about this is to sort of turn the question around, and instead of asking why do animals die, you can ask, well, why wouldn't animals die? And so that leads to the idea that, you know, we know that any piece of complex machinery is going to break down over time unless there's some active process of repair and renewal. And our bodies certainly have these processes of repair and renewal, and those are the things that keep us running uh, well for a few decades. What seems to happen is that once we reach some threshold in our, in our 30s and 40s, these processes of repair and renewal sort of shut down or, or, or shut off, 
And the result of that is aging and eventually death. So in other words, we're really built to die, but there are mechanisms that keep us alive long enough to, well, presumably reproduce, after which we're not necessarily very useful. Yeah, I think you hit it right on the head. I think that, you know, what what the current thinking in the field is, is that this is all about evolution and natural selection. And, you know, up to the point where we've fulfilled our evolutionary duty and, and passed on our genes to the next generation, keeping our bodies in tip-top shape is very important. Once that duty is done, then there's really no selective pressure to maintain our youthfulness. And so that leads to sort of a shutting off of the repair and the renewal, just because we don't need them anymore. We've done our job. Evolution is done with this we can age, and that eventually leads to death. But but there is this. I mean, animals have wildly different lifespans. Uh, for example, the life of a hydra, you know, something you need a microscope to see. Maybe you could describe uh, what this little freshwater animal's lifestyle is like, at least uh, in terms of its lifespan. Yeah, so th- that's actually a really interesting question, and there's been certainly a lot of speculation that hydra are an example of an immortal species. And so I think that we have to be a little bit careful with that, though. So this is a a species that can reproduce either asexually or sexually, and the asexual form reproduces by butting off new individuals. It's also, at least my understanding is it's the case, that you can chop a hydra up into many, many pieces, and each of those pieces retains the regenerative potential to form a whole organism. And so what's what's been reported and what's led to this idea that that in the asexual form, the budding form, hydra are immortal, is that in the the very limited number of studies that have been done, there has been no indication that over time the potential of this organism to regenerate decreases. Now, I, I say the limited number of studies because there's only, I think, about 13 papers that have been published on this, so it, it really remains, I think, an open question as to whether uh, this organism is truly immortal. It is definitely the case, though, that different organisms do seem to age at different rates. And that's really, I think, one of the observations that's driving research in this area is to try to understand, well, what are the genetic factors that determine why different species age at different rates? I believe it's so that the the, the more massive you are, the bigger an animal you are, usually the longer you live. I, I suppose that's not always the case, but I'm thinking parrots and turtles may be exceptions to that rule, but elephants live a lot longer than squirrels. Right. Yeah, so that, that's, a, that's um, definitely the case across species. So in a, in a species comparative fashion, it seems to be that in general, the larger species live longer. Sort of an interesting twist on that is that if you look within one species, it's almost the opposite, that the smaller individuals tend to live longer. So if you only consider mice, for example, uh, it seems to be that the animals that are smaller tend to live longer. And, and there, there's actually some evidence that this is related to uh, hormonal signaling through growth factor pathways that the smaller animals have less growth factor signaling, and that may be why they're actually living longer. It sounds like death is something that was programmed into life very early on. Let, let me ask, since death seems to be something that follows reproduction, I mean, you've, you've done your, your evolutionary bit there, and then, you know, now we can get rid of you. It's not that they want to get rid of us, it's just that we no longer have any incentive to keep you going. But on the other hand, at least for humans, you know, once the baby's born, that's not the end of the story because babies require a lot of attention for a long period of time. Is, is that typical in the animal world, that they have to live longer than just the age of reproduction? Yeah, so, I mean, I think, I think that, that you've, what you've hit on is the idea that there's a whole lot of variation out there. I think that, you know, the, 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 the environment that different species live in run the whole gamut from, you know, where... Like in, in mice in the wild, the idea is that most of them actually, due to predation, they don't, in the wild, they aren't even really undergoing aging. Um, so most of them only make it through one, one year, one breeding cycle, and then due to predation in the wild, very few make it to actually a second breeding cycle. So that's like an extreme case where there's not a lot of reason, evolutionary reason, for an animal to be kept around to sort of nurture the young beyond that one season. Certainly in humans, um, it is the case that there, there is a need for the parental generation to uh, be around, to nurture the young, at least for several years. Now, again, it gets a little bit tricky, and I think you have to be somewhat careful when you're thinking about human aging from an evolutionary context. I mean, modern humans, you know, due to modern medicine, human lifespan has been extended quite dramatically over the last few centuries, uh, but from an evolutionary timescale, that really hasn't been enough time for 
any significant evolutionary pressures to have had an effect on human longevity as it is now. And that has led to some lugubrious consequences, hasn't it? I mean, you know, we die of all sorts of diseases that presumably weren't terribly important a couple of thousand years ago when you didn't live long enough to get them. And, and so we sort of decline, we decay. It's, it's, it's kind of a miserable thing. <laughs> uh, you know, wouldn't it be a lot better to just keel over a, a, like a cheap car that suddenly drops its transmission or something? Yeah, so I, I, I certainly don't think it would be better necessarily. I think, you know, there, there are a couple of answers to that question. One is, one is that that's actually an important area that a lot of us who study aging are thinking about is this difference between lifespan and health span. So health span you can think of as the period of life that is really healthy living where you don't have a lot of these uh, diseases of aging that we're familiar with, Alzheimer's disease and heart disease and, and cancer. And so one of the really interesting things that we found is that most of the genes that affect aging do, in fact, also, also uh, expand health span. So the, the period of healthy living is actually increased proportionally to the length by which lifespan is increased. And that's really important because I think a lot of people, uh, when they think about living longer, they worry about the idea that they're going to be living longer in this sort of age decrepit state. And in reality, uh, it seems to be the case that when you slow aging, you actually slow the onset of all of these age-associated diseases. And that's, I think, a real promise of the science that's going on right now in this field, is, is the idea that it may be possible through a drug to not only increase lifespan, but really improve health span uh, and extend the period of healthy living well into old age. I'm talking with Matt Caberline, a biologist at the University of Washington. Well, you brought up a topic that I'm personally very interested in. I suspect I'm not the only one. Uh, the prognosis for curing death. I mean, is, is, is that possible? Is it uh, you know, possible we'll get to immortality, or maybe not immortality, but at least a greatly extended lifespan uh, with anti-aging drugs? Is, is, yeah. is that, is that so, for real? I, I, I'm not going to say it's impossible. I think, um, you know, my personal opinion is that immortality is unlikely in, in any reasonably near future type of scenario. I think that biology is so complex, and I think the more you learn about biology, the more you realize how little you really know. It is so extremely complex, and the aging process is so complex that given where the science is now, I, I don't really see any good prospects for immortality, for completely curing aging or curing death. I do think it is likely that, that human lifespan and human health span can be significantly increased based on targeting the pathways that we know affect aging now. And, you know, there have been, there, there's been a lot of media attention paid to some of the recent studies on compounds like resveratrol and, and rapamycin, which are having effects or apparent effects on aging in mammals, in mice. And so I think that, you know, we're getting to the point now in the field where we're starting to see a real likelihood of these, these pathways and targeting these pathways with drugs, making it into human clinical trials. And I'm very optimistic that we could see uh, significant increases in human lifespan, you know, within the lifespan of, of people who are in their 30s or 40s today. You know, I, I spoke with my doctor recently, and I told him I was really bummed out. After 10,000 generations of Homo sapiens, I missed this extension of lifespan by, by one or two generations. That seems a, like a real bummer. Let me finally ask you, Matt, uh, about death and, and what the definition of death is, because we know that uh, there are different conceptual boundaries between life and death in the context of human medicine. There are some sort of tests that I suppose doctors use to, to determine when they say now the patient is dead or whatever. But what does a biologist say? Is there a biological definition of death? You know, that's a really good question, and I don't think there's a satisfactory answer. And in fact, you know, those of us who study aging in very simple organisms like yeast or, or worms we don't even all agree necessarily on what the definition of death is. So one of the ways that you measure alive versus dead in, in the nematode worms, worm C. elegans is, you know, does the worm still move? And when the worm doesn't move anymore, we call it dead. But in fact, there's probably metabolic processes that are going on for a while after they stop moving, where in a human, you would consider that person alive. So I don't have a good answer for you. I, I don't know what, what the real biological definition of death is. All right, not dead yet. <laughs> Matt, <laughs> Matt Caberlin, thank you so very much for talking with me. Absolutely, thank you. Matt Caberlin is a biologist in the pathology department at the University of Washington, where he heads up the Caberlin lab that explores the molecular mechanisms of aging. Seth, now if you look over here at this picture, it's actually a photograph on the on the stone. Looks like a, a Navy man. Yeah. Well, it says USNR, U.S. Mm -hmm. Naval Reserve, mm -hmm. 1945. Presumably was, died in the war because yeah, he, he was born in 1926. 
So, yeah, he, well, he was only uh, 19 years old when he died. Clearly a sailor. There are many expressions of love right on the stones here. We will love you always, to life, to love, to us. Uh, you know, Molly, a couple of years ago, I went to the military cemetery at El Alaman in North Africa, where the battles of the Second World War were fought, of course. And there, you know, it was a military cemetery, so all the gravestones were the same, but the inscriptions were not. And uh, the inscriptions for the British soldiers were so touching. They were all very personalized. And, uh, you know, they, they, they just rent your heart. They really did. And this, this is, of course, a municipal cemetery, so it's uh, non-ecclesiastical. They don't care what religious persuasion you were. Anybody could be buried here, presumably, who lived in this area. What's remarkable is the diversity, too. I've seen names that are Greek and Vietnamese, Spanish. Yeah. Now, of course, it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyhow. These bodies are all buried, which is a common practice out of respect for the dead and the living who want closure and who need to grieve. They know exactly where the, the remains uh, remain. But what happens to a dead body that is not buried is of great interest to those who work in the medical and law enforcement fields. How is it that police and medical examiners, when they come across a crime scene, for example, are able to determine how someone died or when? Part of the answer comes from a patch of land at the University of Tennessee Forensic Anthropology Facility, more simply known as the Body Farm. And that's not a farm where you'd be tempted by the crops, because the crops are corpses. Dozens of dead bodies lie around the body farm, cooking under the Tennessee sun. Some are partly buried, others are covered with leaf debris. Once they're in place, scientists just wait to see what happens next. What insects come a-calling as the bodies start to decay? How do amino acids and gases break down and are released? And how long does it take a body to reach a skeletal stage? What the scientists observe on the body farm helps them teach others about how to pinpoint a time of death. And this is data that has helped solve crimes. The body farm began as a small parcel of land in 1971. The vision of forensic anthropologist Bill Bass to create the first laboratory dedicated to the study of human decomposition. Today, the University of Tennessee facility covers three acres, rather smaller than this cemetery here, and is enclosed by a tall wooden fence and coiled barbed wire. Dr. Bass has retired from teaching at the university, but he's still active in research on and education about a plot of land that one writer described as a bizarre but necessary kingdom. Dr. Bass, where do the bodies come from that are on the body farm? Molly, they come from three sources. The first is they come through the medical examiner system. These are unclaimed bodies that a person ended up in the medical examiner system for some reason or another. And in Tennessee, if that person is unclaimed and has to be buried at state expense, that expense falls upon either the county or the city in which the death occurred. It costs about $700 to bury a body in Tennessee and they would much rather give it to me for nothing than they would pay the $700. So it goes to science. So it goes to science, that's right. I have obviously not visited the body farm, and, and you don't allow tours. I'm trying to picture it in my mind. It's difficult. You have bodies lying around this yard, and, and each has an identification number? Well, <clears throat> it's not a yard. It's uh, three acres of uh, wooded hillside. Uh, some of it that's open, but most of it is, is wooded. What we've tried to do is to recreate the environment of Tennessee. So we have bodies uh, uh, in the open, in the shade, in the sun, uh, buried, not buried. We have them in cars, in the trunks of cars, in the seat of cars. We have built a building or two occasionally to reproduce a particular situation in which a, a body has been found and there's no data in the literature and so what we've tried to do is reconstruct a, a crime scene. Hold on right there, and we'll hear more from Bill Bass in a moment. You're listening to Grave Matters on Are We Alone? Science Radio for Thinking Species on Any World. Well, here's a matter that isn't grave. Joining Team SETI helps the work of scientists at the SETI Institute who are trying to understand life on this planet and looking for it elsewhere in the universe. Joining Team SETI is easy to do at SETI.org. And when you do join, send an email to the radio show at arewealone at SETI.org and we'll send you a photograph of the living, breathing, somewhat sentient staff, Barbara, Gary, Molly, and me. Perfect for wiping smooshed insects from your radiator grill or wrapping fish heads. Team SETI at SETI.org and Are We Alone at SETI.org. It's an idea that's dead on.
This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. We now return to Molly's interview with forensic anthropologist Bill Bass about the body farm. Now, Bill, I understand that decomposition technically begins four minutes after death. I don't know if that's true or not. You can tell me when it begins and what begins to decay first on the body. Well, that's that's an interesting. When you said four minutes after death, I'm not sure where that came in. The entomologists the entomologist are those individuals who study insects. And the first of the critters, insects or animals and things like that, to be attracted to decaying bodies are the blowflies. These are the green and blue iridescent flies. And there have been a number of studies that show that if you have somebody who is dying, that the blowflies become active before death occurs. In other words, the body is giving off certain smells. These smells are mainly compounds, a breakdown of the compounds in the body. And that apparently begins to occur before death. Before death? Yes. In other words, if somebody's dying, it's, these individuals are giving off a smell that the flies are alerted to. Now, the, what happens in a body, you get putrefaction, which is the, the breakdown of the cells inside the body. And you also get uh, the decay process involves the enzymes in the body beginning to simply digest the bones in the intestinal tract. Intestinal tract has lots and lots of bacteria. And this is the first area to go, to go meaning to begin to decay. This leads to such things you may have heard of marbling. Uh, Marbling is where the bacteria in the blood builds up and you can see the blood through the skin and uh, this is one of the steps in determining the age of, a, of an individual. Now, how much, to what degree do insects, these insects or these blowflies that come and they lay their eggs there, to what degree do they hasten this process? Oh, they, they are nature's major helpers in reducing a carcass to its minimum, which would be bones and teeth. They do a tremendous job. In Tennessee in July and August, where it's very hot, very humid. You can go from what you and I are now to complete skeleton in only two weeks. So it's not the sun, necessarily, being out in the full sun? or No. Um, maggots don't like sunlight. You can go out and find a body lying out in the sun, and there will be very few maggots on it. You know, you do your analysis, you put that body in a black disaster bag to bring back to the body farm. When you get back to the body farm and you open that black disaster bag, There are literally thousands and thousands of maggots there. Mm. You might have think, my gosh, this is a spontaneous generation of maggots, but it's not. These maggots were down inside the body. When you put it in that that black disaster bag and zip it up, they think it's night. And so they come outside of the body to the outside. If you leave it there for a while, we just stand and watch them, they will all disappear back into the body and takes them maybe five minutes, something like that. I don't know that I would have the stomach to take your class, I have to say. <laughs> well, 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 that's true. And, and you know, the, if everybody did, then, then we wouldn't have people in other, in other areas. So, uh, but this is an opening for some people who are interested in this process. Well, can you give me an example then of how you go about pinpointing the time of death? And, for example, how the insects might help you actually pinpoint it? And to what degree how accurate you can get to that time of death. All right. If you're looking at the insects, as the blowflies lay their eggs, the eggs hatch into maggots. And the maggots go through a growth period. You have teenage maggots, you have young adult maggots, and you have old adult maggots. And those are the three stages of the growth of the maggot. Then the maggot reaches the genetic potential where it needs to change from the worm to the fly stage. It will leave the body find a dark place, encase itself in what is called a pupa case, that's P-U-P-A, a pupa case, and the metamorphosis between the worm and the fly occurs in the pupa case. Now, going back and trying to determine 
how long somebody's has been dead, you will find that the maggots begin to hatch at various stages. So you have multiple hatches. It's just not one hatch and it's over. If you're trying to determine the length of time that the individual has been dead, you always want to select the largest maggots because the largest maggots represent the earliest hatch. Then you're looking at other things. You're looking at skin slippage on the body. You're looking at marbling. Uh, You're looking at various parts of the body that will be exposed by the eating away of the maggots. Uh, So it's a fairly complicated process that is not as accurate as you would hope it would be. So it's accurate within an hour, hours, day? Okay. From the time of death on, the accuracy decreases, or, or let's say in another way. If you have been dead a day, we should be able to tell you within a couple of hours. If you've been dead a week, we should be able to tell you within a couple of days. If you've been dead a month, we should be able to tell you within a week or two. If you've been dead a year, the error factor there is getting up into plus or minus two or three months, something like that. Now, it sounds like these insects are very helpful when you're trying to determine uh, the time or the day of death with a body that that actually still has some flesh on it or proteins or something that these insects can eat. But um, your specialty is bones. So how do you pinpoint, how do you figure out when someone died when all you have are, are the skeletal remains? Now, the longer the body is out there, the more difficult it is to determine the length of time. At the body farm, we normally leave a body out there about a year. If you leave it longer than that, then the sun begins to take its toll on the bone and the bone begins to exfoliate. Uh, You know, Estee Lauder came out with a cream for women to exfoliate. I tell my wife she shouldn't buy that stuff because she's going to exfoliate after death anyway. So, uh, (laughs) but uh, you... You need to look at the checking or the exfoliation of the bone, and you can get some idea of, uh, you know, get a better idea of how long that individual has been dead. Now, you're a scientist, you're a forensic anthropologist, and and that's how you approach the body farm and your work there. But is the body farm a sad place? It strikes me that it might be a very sad place to visit. Well, not necessarily. There's life out there all the time. There are birds and there are insects. And uh, in the spring, the birds sing. And the birds kind of like it because the birds eat maggots. I mean, that's one of their, that's something that they, they eat. So there are lots of birds in the area. And it is, it is full of graduate students who are doing uh, research. They're excited about their master's thesis or doctoral dissertations. And, uh, and um, I think instead of being a place where uh, you think there's only death. There's all kinds of excitement and activity. And I wonder if because how you approach this uh, from a scientific perspective with curiosity, you turn a subject that for a lot of people has a lot of sadness to it, fear associated with it, which is death. Maybe you help see them see death as as a natural process, which, of course, it is. Uh, yeah. Molly, let me tell you, I... <clears throat> You, you don't know this, but I have lost two wives to cancer. I hate death. I hate mourning. I, I hate funerals. I just don't like that scene at all. But it's interesting what your mind can do. As a forensic anthropologist, I never see a forensic case as a dead body. I see that forensic case as a, as a puzzle. Do I have the ability to figure out who that individual is and what happened to them? And so... As long as I have done this, and it's been 54 years now, I, I never look at a forensic case as a dead body. It's just interesting what, what your mind can do. Dr. Best, thank you very much for talking to us. Molly, thank you. It's been very nice. I've really enjoyed this. Bill Bass is a forensic anthropologist at the University of Tennessee and founder of the University of Tennessee Forensic Research Facility. You can read more about his work in his book, Beyond the Body Farm or about forensic science in his works of fiction found under his pen name, Jefferson Bass, the latest, Bones of Betrayal. Well, Molly, it seems death is unavoidable. I think the evidence supports that. 
Yeah, well, we might be able to postpone it with pills, as we heard earlier, but frankly, there's no hope. Like the proverbial taxes, there's no loophole unless... Well, wait a minute. Hang on a minute, Molly. I need to make a quick phone call. Everything uh, okay? Yeah, yeah, everything's fine. Let me get my cell phone here. I'll okay. be right. I'll be right back. Okay. Uh, yeah. Right. I'll be this is Karen. I'm an enrolled agent specializing in tax preparation and planning. Uh, Karen, listen. Paying taxes every year is such a pain. Anyway, can I get out of it next year? Oh, gosh, no. There really isn't a way to get out of paying your taxes. Well, well, come on, Karen. I paid taxes for years and years. Surely I can skip just one year. Well, there is no all-free year. It's an every-year kind of an event. Well, can't we get creative? I mean, there must be some kind of loophole. Can I move my accounts to a Caribbean island? That won't get you out of paying taxes in the United States of America. M- maybe I could claim to be a conscientious objector or, or just somebody with a moral objection against paying tax? Well, you can object. In fact, some days I object to paying taxes, but that still requires that I pay them. Oh, it sounds like I'm running out of ideas here. By the way, Seth, I want to remind you that you probably need to pay your next quarterly estimate very soon. What, what, I have to pay that too? Oh, you bet. You always have to pay your taxes. It's inevitable. Okay, well, uh, thanks, Karen. You're welcome. Hey, Seth, everything okay? Yeah, 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 I guess. It it seems death is unavoidable, actually, and my estimated tax is coming due. So we've heard why we die and what happens to our bodies after we die, but what happens to those who go on living when someone they love passes away? Many loved ones walk the paths that Seth and I are walking now in cemeteries like this one at Santa Clara's Mission City Memorial Park. They come to be close to those who die to remember, to have some peace and quiet and reflect. Sort of like that couple sitting over there, I suspect. But not everyone feels this need to be physically near to their loved one. Burying a body is one approach to death, as is paying a visit to a cemetery. But of course, how we approach death varies by culture. University of California anthropologist Stanley Brandis has studied the rites of death in Mexico and Guatemala. Stanley, why do we bury the dead? Of all things you can do with a dead body, it always struck me as a bit strange to put it into the ground. Uh, Well, I mean, the simplest answer to that is that we bury the dead because we were taught to bury the dead, and that's the practice that has been transmitted to us over the generations. Not all peoples everywhere bury their dead. There are peoples in India, for example, who lay the dead out on platforms and let vultures eat the bodies of the dead. So we can't say that this is a universal practice, but I think we specifically do it, not only for historical reasons, but also because we find it impossible to conceive of the dead as being absent from the moment that they die. That is, I think most of us still believe in the presence of the dead, even if we don't believe in an afterlife. It is just something either that we learn or that is sort of programmed in us to believe that or at least have the sense that the dead are still around. Well, well, surely there's some practical aspect to this in the sense that you can't just leave them in the basement as was done in the movie Psycho. You've got, you've got to do something with the body, but putting them in the backyard in a hole in the ground, that may have given us some comfort, or should I say our ancestors some comfort? Well, m- many, many of our dead in the United States are not buried. You know, a lot of people want to be cremated and have their ashes scattered at sea. Many people really don't care what happens to their bodies after they're dead. So I guess your question points to a very prevalent practice, but certainly not a universal practice, not even here in the United States. Maybe I could ask you a little bit more of the role of cemeteries, uh, because they clearly are important to people. I mean, uh, there was the scandal at Burr Oak Cemetery in Chicago, and right, right? Uh-huh. In, in which bodies were moved, and mm-hmm. and the the relatives were upset for many reasons. Mm-hmm. For one, they said the body being gone, they no longer had a focal point for their grief. And mm-hmm. what does that say about the role of cemeteries for the living? I mean, I. As you point out, well, the, the, the living for who, for the living who care. I mean, it's important to have identifiable remains. I studied a case of a Guatemalan immigrant in San Mateo County whose body was found on Highway 280 in the middle of the night, dead. He was taken to the morgue, 
and he was accidentally delivered to a funeral parlor that cremated his body without the permission of the family in Guatemala. This was horrifying for them. The toe tags had been mixed up, his and, and some other immigrant. Well, lawsuits ensued, not only on the grounds of um, not consulting the family and not doing what the family would have wanted, which is burial of the intact body, but also because of the destiny of the soul. Because in, in Guatemala, among many people in Guatemala, this, certainly this family and their community, you have to bury an intact body in order for the soul to be released. Otherwise, the soul wanders eternally. This goes back to the Middle Ages, actually, where devout Catholics would actually try to find body parts of the saints and of other people so that they could, they could put a body together, even fingernails, foreskins, things like that, parts of the body, piece it all together so that the deceased could be buried intact in order for the soul to be released. I'm talking with anthropologist Stanley Brandis. Uh, you know, the cemetery where Molly and I have been walking, is it's beautiful, but it's somewhat somber. Not all cemeteries are like that. Now, as you've mentioned, you've studied cemeteries and rituals in other, in other countries, in particular Mexico. Can you make any generalizations about how they might compare with cemeteries here in the United States? I believe that most Mexicans of the working classes and rural, rural Mexicans would see a cemetery as being almost a replica of a little city or town for the dead. And if you go to many Mexican cemeteries, particularly those in central Mexico and southern Mexico, uh, you'll see a lot of tombstones, monuments, cemetery monuments in the shape of houses. Uh, very often, these tombstones celebrate the lives or commemorate the lives of multiple members of the family. And when family members are buried with others, uh, you get a kind of, just to, to use a kind of crude analogy, a kind of condominium effect so that you have uh, maybe as many as four or five people. This is true throughout much of Latin America. Four or five uh, people buried in the same plot. And I, I think most people would see that as a way of the deceased keeping one another company. Uh, that almost replicate the society of the living. Stanley Brandis is an anthropologist at the University of California, Berkeley, and the author of Skulls to the Living, Bread to the Dead, The Day of the Dead in Mexico and Beyond. You're listening to Are We Alone? Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Now, one of the reasons that the dead are buried, at least traditionally, is to prevent the spread of infectious disease. Even if a body is no longer alive biologically, of course, a pathogen within the body might be and could jump host to infect other people. Bacteria and viruses, after all, are biological agents and are found in the natural environment, often widespread and can either make people sick, giving them a mild gastrointestinal disturbance, for example, or even be deadly. Now, the Centers for Disease Control have given these organisms biosafety ratings from 1 to 4 based on their threat. Level 1 are viruses and bacteria such as E. coli that require minimal precautions to work with them in a lab, such as a mask and gloves. Level 2 agents require more caution and include Lyme disease, measles, mumps, and HIV. Biosafety level 3 agents can be lethal, but there are vaccines or other treatments for them. West Nile virus, yellow fever are examples. Working with them in a lab demands protective clothing and proper ventilation, including lowering the atmospheric pressure in the room that keeps airflow from leaving. Then there's biosafety level four. These are dangerous agents that have a high risk of being transmitted through the air. They can cause fatal diseases and do not have a vaccine or treatment. To work with them, the CDC requires a full body suit, an oxygen supply, and a shower room, a vacuum room, and a UV light room to eliminate any chance that the agent will escape. The virus that causes Lassa fever is under biosafety level 4 containment in the United States. 
but those were nowhere near the conditions Los Angeles medical student Ross Donaldson found when he went to Sierra Leone in 2003 to treat victims of Lassa fever. Sierra Leone was at the tail end of a civil war with neighboring Liberia on Africa's west coast, and then came an outbreak of Lassa fever. It's one of the world's deadliest diseases, and Ross Donaldson had never seen it, and certainly not under conditions such as he saw there. The Lassa Ward was the, the clinic in Sierra Leone, and the, and the only clinic in the world dedicated to the treatment of Lassa fever. And Lassa spelled L-A-S-S-A. It's a, a disease that is similar to Ebola in that it's a hemorrhagic fever, and it's communicable from person to person. And there's only a, a handful of diseases that fit into that category, Ebola and Marburg and Lassa. Uh, and it can be spread from, from person to person by contact with their secretions and, and touching them. And it really is quite horrific when people have the disease, they get a fever, uh, as the name implies in the beginning, and then if they get the severe symptoms, they can go on to bleed out from their eyes and their nose and their ears, essentially all of the holes in their body suddenly uh, they, they spontaneously start bleeding from. What is the treatment for Lhasa? Right, and, and what drugs tend to work on the disease, if anything? Well, there there is no vaccine for Lhasa fever, but there is a drug called ribavirin, which is an antiviral medication. And if it is given to patients early enough, then it actually can um, dramatically reduce their chances of dying. The difficulty is that when it's it's early enough to give it, the patients only have a fever and they don't have all the, the classic signs of Lhasa where they're clearly bleeding out and it's obvious what's going on. And so... The diagnostic dilemma and the difficulty is in deciding whether or not you should give the, the people who just have a fever and some other signs the drug or not, because there are some very um, significant side effects of the drug, so you don't want to just give, go giving it to everybody who has a fever. This is a highly contagious disease, and you attended to a number of patients in the Lhasa ward. How did most of them acquire the virus, and to what degree did rats play a role? Yeah, well, rats are the, the reservoir of Lhasa fever, which means that there's a normal transmission amongst rats in, in this area of West Africa, and it gets from the rat world, as it is, into the human world in, in by contact between rats and humans. And in this part of West Africa, uh, it's thought that it's from the rats urinating around the huts and so forth that the people live in, but it's also from the people actually eating rats, as they do in that part of the world. And then once it goes into the people, it can spread from person to person. Normally when the people are bleeding out, they kind of bleed out with all these copious fluids. And when someone else uh, touches those fluids or, or gets it on their mucous membranes, then, then the transmission goes from person to person. Now, the loss award was run by a man with the name of Anaru Kante. Who was he? And, and can you describe what it was like to go through the rounds with him for the first time on one of your first days? Sure. Dr. Conte was a, a physician from Sierra Leone originally. He had gone and done some of his medical training in, in Nigeria before coming back uh, to Sierra Leone. And essentially, when he had first arrived back in Sierra Leone, he had started working on loss of fever with people from the U.S. Uh, Center for Disease Control who had just discovered the disease out in that area of the world. When the fighting started in Sierra Leone, the CDC and, and expatriate staff left the country, essentially leaving Dr. Conte to be the only expert for loss of fever in Sierra Leone. He eventually built up the loss award, which in some ways actually protected him because the, the rebels were actually so scared of the disease that they, in part, left the loss award alone um, while the hospital around it actually at one point was burned. So you met Dr. Conte, and he took you through the rounds for the first time, and, and you saw Lhasa patients for the very first time. Can you describe what your reaction was? Yeah, I, well, the, the first reaction, and I think a, a repeated reaction, was was a fear for my own safety, I have to say, was was my initial reaction. It, it, it was so dramatic what was going on with the patients, and I was well aware that the disease uh, could be potentially transmitted to myself. That of course, I was taking precautions while doing it, but that uh, that is, I have to admit, the first thing that I was thinking about. And over time, that would go away a little bit, and then it would suddenly come back that you would realize that exactly what you were doing there in the ward. And it underscores what your position was. Here you are, a, a young doctor. Um, you haven't had any experience with some of these diseases with patients. You know, you've read about them. And you're making life and death decisions on your own. 
Yeah, I think it. I think in retrospect, it struck me that it, the process seemed very similar to the process of uh, what what's described in medical texts as the Kubler-Ross process of coming to terms with death. That uh, whenever someone dies, people go through these same processes, and and that's a first you have denial, and then you have bargaining with higher powers, and then at some point you you have a whole series of things that you're going through, including anger and so forth, when you're trying to come to terms with that. And I think I, I really went through those same kind of emotions myself uh, when I was there trying to come to terms with being stuck alone with all these very sick people to care for. But that includes anger. Were you angry? Yeah, I was definitely, I was angry at, at Dr. Conte uh, for having left me there for sure. And also, I think, angered uh, by the the stark differences in healthcare that were there in Sierra Leone, the lack of resources, uh, the the really kind of the forgetfulness of the rest of the world about what was going on in this part of West Africa. In Sierra Leone and where you were in this Lassa ward, death is everywhere. And it's not just from Lassa, it's from uh, malaria, malnutrition, and other diseases. And you also have this uh, war going on. What What is the attitude of the local people who are confronted by so many threats and by a shortened lifespan? Well, I think it, it in many ways was a, a logical response to that, which was to try and enjoy the moment uh, a bit as much as possible. And and really, although I think the the disease itself and a lot of the things in the area are very stark, the the people that I had met there and and lived with were were really. Um, very optimistic and in many ways very happy, joyous people, which I think at first I thought uh, was somewhat shocking. And then after a while, it, it just seemed to make more and more sense. You write about how much the experience changed you, and you've been talking about that. And certainly you lost some patients, which were very upsetting, but you also saved lives. And one of the stories that you tell that has stayed with me uh, was a life that you saved and no drugs were involved. It was a tiny baby that was born prematurely to a woman who had, she had Lhasa and she recovered. Mm -hmm. And you saved that baby's life. And Can you describe how you saved his life? Yeah, well, uh, so that was a, a, a child that I'd been taking care of his, his mom, who had actually been a very uh, young mom. She was, although it was hard to say for sure, she was around 13 or 14 years old. And she actually delivered in the early morning. And, and when I arrived, um, one of our nurses had been a traditional birth attendant for many years, so she was comfortable delivering the baby. But the baby had come out uh, and, and was slightly premature, uh, probably because of the infection. And the, the nurse had made a decision uh, that later on, it, 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 it was a very shocking decision to me, but she thought that the, because the baby was so small, that the baby, there was no way that the child was going to live and it essentially put the child away to the side uh, to die. And coming from the States, the, the child was a little bit premature for the States, but but not very much. And, and here in the States would go on to have a completely normal life. And so when I came to the ward and I saw this, this very cold baby just slowly that I at first thought was dead, but I, I realized was just in the process of dying, it, it really just kind of shook me to my core that that this child essentially was just going to die because they had been born in that part of the world as, a, as opposed to some other part. So, so you took this child, this tiny baby, and you held it in your hands. You saw that it was still breathing. And you went and you, and you placed it on the mother and then, and then wrapped it in, in blankets. And, and what happened after a couple hours? Well, I, I did. I, I, I put it on the mom's uh, chest, and then we, we, we found about every blanket in the, in the ward and piled it on top of them. And eventually, over several hours, we, I did uh, kind of come back several times, and the baby slowly rewarmed and essentially started crying. And, and eventually, yeah, the child went on to be normal and to be living at least to that, that point of the child's age was, was doing great. Now, you returned to the United States, which was quite a shock and also welcoming in many ways. And then after, um, after some time there, after maybe a month or two, you received a note from one of the, the nurses back in the Lassa Ward about Dr. Conte. So Dr. Conte, he really proved to be uh, a great mentor and, and friend to me. And, uh, and I felt very, very close to him. And eventually, after I had gotten back to the, uh, to the States, I did get an email 
uh, from a friend out there who explained what it, what had happened, which was that Dr. Conte, who was an older uh, man and had been actually trying to retire from the Lasso Award for several years, but it, but really couldn't find uh, anyone else in the country who would actually care for his patients. And, and because of his devotion, essentially just continued on. And he actually uh, stuck himself while trying to care for a pregnant woman and drawing blood himself and uh, got loss of fever and died uh, very shortly after that. I know from reading your book that was very upsetting to you. And you write at the end of the book that you're, you're trying to find meaning in all of this. You've gone from California, London, to Sierra Leone, to these incredible conditions, back to California. This man who was your mentor died. After all that you have seen, you tried to find meaning in it all, and you said you really struggled. Could you find meaning, and, and what did you come away with? Well, I think, I mean, I think that is the human condition is trying to find meaning to what's going on around us. And I think uh, seeing the more extremes of the human condition only make you wonder about that even more. And I think, as I, I write a little bit in the, at the end of The Lost Award, is that I, I searched for a long time for that meaning. And I think in the end, not that I, I gave up in that search, but that I decided it was it was better or perhaps it was easier to, to focus on the meaning that you could give to the experience as opposed to the meaning that you're trying to search and find. And I think that's the, the message that I tried to take away at the end, at least. Ross Donaldson, thank you very much for talking to me. Well, it's been my pleasure. Ross Donaldson is a medical professor at UCLA, and he's the author of The Loss Award, One Man's Fight Against One of the World's Deadliest Diseases. And that's it for our show. We'd like to thank Barbara Vance and Gary Niederhoff for their help in the program. Also, the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, where looking for life elsewhere in the universe means first understanding life here on Earth. You've been listening to Grave Matters on Are We Alone? You can listen again on our website, SETI.org. And while you're there, check out our archive. Okay, Molly. I think uh, they're beginning to close this place up, uh, shooing people out. We'll have to leave, I think. Okay, we should go. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.